Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. As you can see this week, I am joined by comrade Ivanov. Hello, Cyprian. How are you this week? Well, okay. I, uh, I'll take that as a, as a good thing. Uh, yeah, you weren't just describing your meal last night or anything, right? <laughs> it was, uh, thank you, comrade. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Okay, good. Da, da. Uh, okay, good. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, this week, we are continuing our discussion that we started a couple weeks ago about Scientology, about management in Scientology, certainly drawing from my Sea Org experience, where I was a Sea Org manager of Scientology churches for something, you know, like nine years or eight years or something, a good long time. And certainly, an, oh, by the way, an unusually long amount of time for anyone to be in a single position in Scientology and in the Sea Org. It's a very musical chairs operation where people are transferred around a lot. That itself is a source of management stress and problems, but that's not what we're going to cover today. Cyprian and I are, um, are having a meeting of the minds. He has given me a list of things that we are discussing that are stress, you could say stress-related topics or, or pressure points that exist within the Scientology world and, and perhaps others as well, because these turn into mechanisms of control, ways of, of manipulating and controlling people. And that's kind of the angle we're taking in discussing this stuff. We talked about loyalty in our first episode because that's rather fundamental and key to the whole thing. It's what keeps everything in place. But now we're going to move on to maybe some more specific aspects of management and executive abuse. <laughs> so, uh, Cyprian, do you have anything you'd like to comment on before we enter into the fray of, of the specifics of this this week? Just a reminder that these issues exist in Almost every organization, it's the degree of scale that can turn it from being just somewhat misguided to being outright abusive and a tribute to somebody's megalomania. Excellent. Every, their time pressures exist in any task, but the way they are handled and the awareness of the costs and inefficiencies is very different between organizations. And in cults especially, they seem to be handled in a uniquely uncaring way. Yes, I think that that is very true. It's interesting how, in fact, um, one of my first days on the RPF kind of epitomizes this. And it's, 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 a, it's, a little, it's a little slice of my life that I've never forgotten because it, was so, it, it actually rubbed me the wrong way so hard, even as a Sea Org member. I was, you know, I was pretty down and out when I hit the RPF. Uh, and if any, and if any of you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it's the Scientology Prison Program of Rehabilitation. And I did that program, and it took me three years to get through. And there's a lot of hard physical labor, and that's. And I, I've summarized it and talked about it in detail in other podcasts, so I won't go into any more detail than that. But there was something that happened on day one or day two that was sort of demonstrative of the attitude. The, the of the Sea Org, the group I was part of. And, that, and this is where we were tasked 
with carrying a very large desk. It was a U-shaped front desk for the current office of, the, of, of CCHR International's Museum of Death on Hollywood Boulevard. It's, it's, the desk is probably still there. Well, we had to haul this thing down three flights of stairs because it was built up in a mill, which was up on the third floor. And in carrying it down, my hands and the various things, I mean, this was very, very heavy, a solid wood, and it's, it's quite high and quite large. And so there were about six of us tasked with carrying this thing down three flights of stairs. And we were all holding different parts. And there was a part where my hand was about to get bashed into the wall. Well, we needed to keep this thing pristine. It had to be perfect. And yet we're hand carrying it down the flights of stairs because we wouldn't possibly imagine using the freight elevator. This is the what? RPF, right? Yeah, there was a freight elevator. We could have used that. But this is, you know, the RPF way is the most difficult way. It was, it was almost a running joke we had. It was the RPF way of doing things, right? And this was called Egyptian style because we're all carrying it. We can't put it on a dolly. We can't put it on a truck. We can't, you know, take it in an elevator. We got to do it the hardest way possible. And I'm told specifically at one point when I'm afraid that my hand is about to get crushed by this thing because it was heavy enough to do that, better your hand than the desk, Right. This is that. It doesn't sound like much, but in that moment when I was faced with a broken hand, <laughs> and unfortunately it didn't bash against the wall. I thought it was going to, and I was I was a millisecond away from taking my hand away, but somehow we kept it from doing that. But I was about to get my hand broken, and I was told by another Sea Org member who was looking right at me, "Better that than this desk." has something bad happen to it. You don't want to see what happens if that were to happen. That's how I was talked to. And I thought to myself... Okay, so it was an actual threat, not just an uh, encouragement. Yeah, and I was... And I, I've always remembered that because it was a real light bulb moment for me of, oh my God, I'm in something really bad. <laughs> like, I've really landed in the wrong place, right? Maybe it doesn't sound like much now, but I in in the I moment, understand the attitude. Yeah, it's in the moment very, it, was, um, it was alarming. You know, because I didn't because it was very much communicated. Of course, I didn't matter. My well being didn't matter. This desk was way more important than I was ever going to be. And I'd like to point out a lot of people use "you don't matter" as hyperbole, but there are situations in which that is literally true. That's right. And, and this was one of those cases, right? When you're on the RPF, you, it's like being an untouchable in the Hindu caste system. It's really, it, I mean that. I mean, it really is like that. It's, it's bottom rung. You are the lowest. You are the scum of the earth. Um, and you're specifically dangerous to be in contact with. Exactly. That's right. And, and really, just you're just lucky to still be here, you know? Now, apparently, the RPF is no longer a thing. They, and because of our exposure about it, and I had another podcast with uh, Aaron Smith-Levin that you guys will see that, uh, if you haven't already, that uh, we'll talk about that. Okay, so, but this time we're going to talk first about sleep deprivation. This is something that is, the Sea Org is famous for. Uh, I have said uh, a, a few times, I've let, uh, let y'all know that um, there was a period of, uh, I think it was four or five days 
where I slept about three hours total in that five-day period. We were on a um, uh, what was called an, an evolution or a, a, a sort of a sudden emergency situation that had to be dealt with. They would call this an evolution. I don't know where that terminology comes from. I, That's I, from the Navy. Is it from the military? And uh, I don't even know if we were using the word properly, but within the Sea Org context, an evolution was a sudden, oh my God, everybody hands on deck, we're all working on this thing and we're gonna get it done. And, in, and it, was the, um, it was manning up, it was getting personnel for an organization uh, on, on the big blue base of buildings. And so we were all up for all hours of the night and day for days on end, getting, vi I mean, some people were getting vitamin shots in their asses. I, I wasn't, but some people were. And um, not that that was supposed to necessarily, <laughs> not that that necessarily does anything, but at the time it was thought this would help you, you know, be complex vitamin shots or something. And, um, and I, this was the first time I ever drank any espresso. God, I hated that, that stuff. Just to try to stay awake, you know. Um, but I actually started hallucinating. It was bad. It was really, really bad. I've never really encountered anything quite like that experience. And it was just sort of take it in stride. Every time I would sit down at a desk where other people were in the room and we were reviewing personnel files or information about people, uh, if you started nodding off, the rest of the people in the room were like shouting at you, you know, wake up, it's not okay, out ethics, you know, kind of thing. Nobody was interested in, you know, uh, compassion in that moment. It was just about, we got to get this done. And it took us five days of work to do it. That was the longest stretch I've ever had personally. So that's an example of what goes on in the Sea Org. One of many, by the way, that just happens to be the worst one that happened to me. I had seen and heard of other examples of people being kept up for days on end, selling... Uh you know, making money, et cetera. But what is the ordinary work schedule like? Is it uh, you can reliably get eight hours of sleep? Is it you're lucky to get six hours? Is it you'll struggle to get four hours? It's, it's interesting. It's a mixed bag, okay? And this is the thing about talking about this that is, um, that is so wild because there isn't a, there's a set schedule in which you have seven to eight hours of sleep time, right? The Sea Org schedule that I lived on was that we were up and at muster in the morning. I believe it was at 8.30 or 8.45. So that means you had to have gotten up, showered, dressed, had breakfast and report in a line. You know, the whole organization shows up, gets in lines. It's kind of like a like a, in the military when you see them in boot camp lining up in lines. It looks like that. And... Um, and we would have to all report, you know, that we were all present and accounted for. And uh, then we go to work and we have a half hour for lunch. We have a half hour for dinner. There are no breaks in the schedule. Uh, there's no 15 minute cigarette break or time off or anything like that. So you go and you get started and you're going to work and uh, half hour lunch, half hour dinner. And then you secure in the evening um, on schedule. It was... I think 11 to 11.15, something like that was, was secure time. And uh, then you were supposed to go to bed. And that's ostensibly you had from 11.15, let's say 11.30 until 8.45 was your time to get sleep and, and chill and, and, and get ready for you know, your next day. 
But what often happened, often, I'd say on a routine weekly basis was there was at least one or two nights out of the week, if not more, where you would be kept over until one, two, even three in the morning, having to deal with some personnel demand or sudden what was called a flap, an emergency, a sudden un unpredicted for emergency was a flap. Oh my God, it's a flap. And, uh, and then you had to deal with that flap. And, uh, and however long it took and however many people had to be thrown at it, that's how it was going to be dealt with. And, and the kind of flaps we're talking about were really arbitrary orders being issued to us. It wasn't like something in the real world happened. Sometimes, like, a, like an organization would, would fall short on its rent payments and suddenly it, was gonna, and it got a notice that it was going to get evicted, that would be an external flap that we would understandably need to drop everything and deal with because this church is about to get kicked out of its building. Still doesn't really call for us to be all up until four in the morning dealing with it, but at least you could kind of understand how that might be a problem. But I'm also talking about flaps like, okay, the quota for the GI, the gross income, hasn't been met yet by the base, and we've got this million-dollar target, and nobody's going to bed until it's met. Things like that. That was also just as routine. So this would cause this, you know, the sleep deprivation, because it's not like if you were up until four or five dealing with the flap that you got to sleep in the next day. You had to be a senior, senior executive in order to be able to have sleep in time. And nobody I ever knew was that senior of an executive, right? So, I mean, I'm talking about maybe two or three people on the base who could get away with that. So the rest of us schleps, you know, had to be at muster in the morning. And if we weren't accounted for, somebody was going to come roust us. And, and I, I, I both received and gave that punishment, you know, that kind of treatment over the years. So uh, that's sort of the answer to that question. I'm sorry it's longer than maybe it needs to be, but it's, that's, the, that's the Sea Org life is you never really knew what your sleep schedule was going to be. So basically at most you can get about eight hours but that's at most. At most. And really the only time anybody cared to give you that time or make sure you had that time is if you needed to go into an auditing session the next day where it was demanded that you be, quote unquote, well rested. So it was only the, so did they care about only the next day? for auditing or just having a continuous series of days? No, it was a one-off. If you had gotten three nights of two hours of sleep, okay, you're supposed to go in session tomorrow, you're getting eight hours of sleep tonight. <laughs> right? And the medical officers signed off on that? Oh, yeah, they didn't care. Yeah, that was absolutely. The, um, the, the, um, the thing about the medical officer in the C organization is actually, this is kind of interesting as a point of little Scientology minutia for you, but the MLO or medical liaison officer, their job is not to necessarily, they don't get medically trained people to do that job. They're not like the Sea Org doctors. They're the guys who are supposed to liaise with the doctors. But because money, because funding was always a problem, these people could barely get any money for even supplements, much less doctor's appointments. 
they became our de facto doctors and they basically educated themselves off of WebMD and, you know, had a, a physician's desk reference on their, on their desk and stuff like that. And this is how we were getting our medical <laughs> advice and treatment. So, you know, and of course, this is a Sea Org member, so they're biased in the direction of the Sea Org and the Sea Org schedule and the Sea Org lifestyle. They're not doctors who are like, what the hell are you doing to yourself? You know, and they then sometimes, and, and let me be clear, because it, I, I don't want to paint them, the MLOs, as uncaring automatons. Often they were really feeling so conflicted about the demands of the Sea Org lifestyle and the physical conditions of the people that they had to deal with, especially when it came to senior citizens. Because there are people in the Sea Org who are way over 60, 70 years old, and they're still being demanded to do these schedules. And of course, there's a certain point where your body just stops. And then you have to have a special schedule, a reduced schedule. This was really only the case for, for chronically, really seriously ill people or senior senior citizens where we would get these special schedules i was never on a special schedule <laughs> for example and neither were anybody that i was you know in my age bracket or anybody i was really connected with so it was a it was a very rare thing and these mlos were the people who would have to fight for that kind of thing so it was it was a culture of 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 abuse at a level where you almost started taking a perverse kind of pride in surviving it, in in living through it, you know, and because uh, you just didn't really feel like you had any choice. I can understand pride in surviving a tough situation, but that's that's a really inefficient situation if yeah it is it's a very inefficient situation now in fact um we already know scientifically speaking and i don't need to read you you know read to the audience here from studies on this but i mean i'll, I'll link to them there uh without question it has been shown that in emergency stress combat situations for example and the sea org is very much that make no mistake if i haven't gotten that across already please understand that we were on red alert almost all the time that's the sea org culture so in that kind of environment the effectiveness your cognitive effectiveness your physical effectiveness just reduces by 25 percent every 24 hours that you're not getting any sleep or getting broken up sleep even is part of the is part of the research on this. It's not even like you can get broken sleep and somehow deal with it. No, that's actually just as bad. You need solid uninterrupted sleep. And this was not something that I actually really knew when I was a Sea Org member. I thought in fact exactly the opposite. I thought I was the one who was running my body and my body wasn't the one who was in charge. And if I told my body to do stuff, I expected it to just comply. And uh, I was needless to say very, very wrong <laughs> about and that attitude. There's a big difference between short-term compliance and long-term effects. Yes, exactly. Because you can push your body for a while uh, as uh, Army Rangers and others uh, going through intensive courses do. Sleep deprivation is part of the experience. Yep. But it's also recognizing your body's breaking down. 
That's exactly right. And, and I think we could be clear about the fact that when it's done in a military training environment, you have a number of safety protocols and, and personnel in place who are who are watching you like a hawk i mean at least in seal training i know this is true that they are really paying attention to how you're doing even though it, you might not be aware of how much they're paying attention to you they are because your safety is still their number one concern even and though they've they been through the process that's and right. they know what sleep deprivation is like and they've seen accidents before and uh the people observing you are more alert than you are. Exactly. And as a training exercise, you go into that fully informed. You know what you're going to do in the BUDS training before you go in there. It's not any secret. And you've, of course, volunteer for it. I mean, the people who do this kind of thing, and whether we're talking SEAL training or special forces or you know, SAS or any of this, all of this, you know, sleep deprivation is always a component of their training because it's a very realistic possibility that from time to time during their operations, they might not get a full night's sleep and they're going to have to deal with that. But that's a far cry from the kind of schedule and deal that we oh, see in God. destructive cults, you know. And this is why I can draw a line here and, and very clearly show that what goes on in the military is is a voluntary, a voluntary informed process. That's a whole different situation from, you know, coming to the Sea Org where you're going to get all your Scientology for free and you're going to get two weeks off every year and, and we're all just a bunch of buds and it's all just wonderful. And then you find out, yeah, once you get in and you can't get out, oh my God, this situation is not at all what they said it was going to be, you know. Um, one of the observations from actual military experience is that people lose mental processing ability. They lose the ability to adapt to changing circumstances as they become increasingly tired. Yep. And when the situation is all predictable, you don't notice a drop off in performance too badly. But when something changes, for example, you go from shooting at a fixed target to shooting at a moving target, mm -hmm. you start to see the impact, or rather the lack of impact very dramatically. Yes, yes, exactly. You, you notice that uh, people who are sleep deprived are more likely to uh, be anxious and respond to innocent things as if they were a threat. That's exactly right. And in fact, I can build on that even more because, you know, the real, I guess the word is irony here. I'm, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm not pulling in Alanis Morissette, but it, it, Hubbard actually wrote about sleep deprivation as a harmful thing to do to people. He actually wrote the words that, I, I, it's not a direct quote, but he said, it, you know, I can produce a psychotic I can produce for you a person who is absolutely psychotic just through food and sleep deprivation. And then he Which creates is, an organization that does that to people, you know. I, I keep on asking, are, is the Sea Org loyal to Hubbard or is it loyal to Miscavige? It's loyal to L. Ron Hubbard's intent and words as interpreted by David Miscavige. That's the most accurate way I can give it to you. That's that's the ideal. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it is, you know. Um, 
there are, however, many, many people who come into Scientology at this point. I mean, basically everybody who came in and from the 80s forward who never really experienced L. Ron Hubbard directly. So it's a very different thing of the before, you know, Hubbard and after Hubbard time. You could call them almost different eras of Scientology because they are so different in character. And I'm sure very probably true. Yeah. It's just, let's remember, Hubbard had real-life experience. Mm-hmm. Miscavige did not. Correct. So when Hubbard was writing about sleep deprivation, he had been in the military. He had seen the effects of sleep deprivation in various environments. That's right. I don't think Miscavige has ever done that, and I don't think Miscavige ever will understand that. Exactly. Exactly. And Sea Org members are driving them based off, driving themselves based off of their boss's estimate, but that boss does not know what the consequences are. That's right. And I've got another anecdote on this, by the way, that you might find interesting. I don't know that I've ever. I, I think I might have told this once, um, but it's right on this line, and it's and it's so interesting because it really confused the hell out of me when I was a Sea Org member. I mean, really, really threw me for a loop. Um, and, it was, and it was on the subject of sleep. I had access, as a management person, I had access to a lot more Hubbard issues and references than, than your average bear. We all did at management, but I really took advantage of it. I loved studying the uh, orders of the day and the evaluations that Hubbard did back in the early 70s when he was on the boat you know, directing management of Scientology internationally. And I took my job as a manager very seriously, and I wanted to do the best job that I could. So I wanted to emulate Hubbard and how he managed organizations because that's what you're supposed to do, you know, do what Ron says, right? If, you know, the mantra in Scientology is always, well, what would Ron do? Well, the more I figured I knew about Ron and and his, you know, hat as a manager, the more better I would be as a manager, so I would take time to, to dive into these issues. And then we had a, it was computerized. We had, it was called SIR, Source Information Retrieval. And we could, you know, go on SIR and look up issues and, and there they were. And, and some of these were kind of obscure. We didn't have them even on, in hard copy, but, but they were on the computer. Well, one day I got it in my mind that I didn't want to sleep anymore. Because sleep was just an annoyance. Sleep was a bother. And this was when I was in the depths of that, of that I'm in control of my body, not the other way around kind of th- way of thinking. It's a, it's a very Scientology way of thinking. Hubbard, Hubbard talks about your body being something different than you because you're the spirit, right? So your body is just a tool. So I one day was like, you know, I don't think Hubbard slept. We always hear these stories about how L. Ron Hubbard wasn't sleeping that much or he was up until all hours of the night doing this and doing that. So you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go go through the references on this and I'm going to uh, you could do keyword searches. So I looked up on Sir the word sleep. And I went through everything I could find from Hubbard and there wasn't a lot. So it didn't take me a long time, but imagine my surprise. And this is years into my Sea Org experience. This is not year one or year two. I'm like six years in or something at this point. I've had so many sleepless nights. I've had all the, you know, all the nonsense. So, um, 
So I'm just thinking there must be some Hubbard solution to this. And what do I find? Hubbard demanded his eight hours of sleep. Right? He had to have it. And it, in fact, it was a high crime practically on the boat to wake him up or to be anywhere near his sleeping quarters when he was sleeping and disturb him. And Hubbard never said anywhere that you can get on two hours or three hours of sleep a night or that you should run your body into the ground. In fact, he wrote this book called The Way to Happiness, which specifically states that you should be getting a full night's sleep every night. And I just about fell out of my chair because I could not resolve the real world reality of my life with what I was reading about how Hubbard demanded that we get sleep. And he would castigate his own crew for staying up late, but he never once ordered them not to do it, if you get my drift. I mean, that kind of depends on whether his subordinates were ordering them to keep on working late. They were. Because that's been a constant tension in the, in, at least with the military, has been uh, uh, the very top ranks know that people are being worked too late, but the people below want to show results. Correct. So they try to keep people up longer. Yep. That so it's happens. A, it's a push press between one level of management wanting to keep people up, the other wanting to let them get some sleep. And it's kind of a, uh, the very top has to balance between the two of them. And, and normally, or not normally, but in certain circumstances, I could see that being the case. But I want to go out of my way to explain that it was not that way with L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard purposefully was creating that double bind. Because when I said he never ordered people you know, to go to bed or to be on schedule, what I meant there is that the way Hubbard would deal with things, and I saw this pattern recur over and over again, is a situation would happen. He, as the head, head, head guy, orders it be handled, knowing full well and in advance that Heads are going to roll, you know, people are going to go to the RPF, lower conditions are going to be assigned, people are not going to be sleeping for days on end, complying with handling this sudden emergency, whatever it is. He knows all that's going to happen. It's on his boat. I mean, it's not like this is even in the world. This is on a boat. It's a very tiny world. Then, after it's all handled... He comes in with the commendations and the, oh, good job, everybody. But I didn't tell you to stay up all night. You shouldn't be doing that. That's not right. That's out ethics. You guys got to be getting more sleep. Why doesn't anybody around here make sure these guys are getting more sleep? And what's with this food, too? You know, people aren't getting any good food around uh, here. See, so he, he would, was pushing he would, people to get stuff done, but he was playing the... A uh, nice captain uh, uh, when all the work was over. Exactly. And I didn't know you guys weren't asleep. What is this? I didn't know all these people were being sent to the RPF. Like, he'd try, to, he'd try to play this latter-day savior. 
of coming in, you know, after all the damage has been done and going, oh, I didn't know this was happening. And, you know, oh, well, let's fix this and fix this and fix this, right? This is, this is one, it's trauma bonding, as we've talked about many, many times on my show at this point. But two, it's, it's a double bind situation where he's setting up these things of, oh, I'm not supposed to stay up all night and do all this work and be this dedicated because that's really bad. But then you're faced with the problem of, you know, Hubbard wants this done and we've only got until six o'clock tomorrow morning to get it done. So guess what? We're all, we're all up all night and it's all hands on decks and here we go. And he would play both of these things and he would, and he would push people around with this kind of crap. You see what I mean? I do. I do. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, it's just, it's, it's actually so crafty because in the moment that it's happening, you don't really see it for what it is. You have to step back and see the pattern before you actually get it. Because when you're in it, it's a trauma bonding situation. Like it, it inures you to him. It sticks you to him. It makes you think he's actually the savior figure that he presents himself as when he is not. He is the abuser all the time. You see what I mean? He had the power over the schedule to ensure people got the sleep. Absolutely. Any time he, he wanted. But he didn't use it. You know, and then he comes in after the fact and says, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. But he's he's already gaining from all this slave work that he's gotten out of you. And then he tells you you shouldn't be doing it. You see what I mean? And then the next one rolls around and it's the same drill all over again. And I... And Part of the way that works is probably that people who are sleep deprived uh, are less able to mentally process the world around them. That's right. Actually, good point. That's exactly right. Because you know, because who's he talking to? A bunch of overworked, starved, you know, really messed up people, who on top of all of that are being fed Scientology, as though it's true, right? Hubbard's taking these guys up you know, on the, on, the, on the deck at night and pointing out stars and telling them fantasies about how, you know, Star Wars is, is kind of real and they were all together. You know, and these are, again, a bunch of sleep-deprived, food-deprived, really, you know, it's not good. So that's, that's the, the motley crew that was on the ship under Hubbard directly. Well, I read about this and I read Hubbard's writings that, you know, sleep is important. You got to get sleep, da, da, da. And I'm now, you know, we're fast forwarding, you know, 20, 30 years later. And I am sitting there in the basement of, of the FOLO, you know, the Flag Operations Liaison Office, not getting sleep, you know, not, leading, a, leading a not fun life and thinking to myself, well, fuck, we're violating Hubbard's writings, like, there's no part of this staying up late all the time thing that Hubbard said to do. But we're doing it. Why are we? And I could never get that resolved. And certainly not from my position in the hierarchy. I was in no position to query or question or do anything to change it. And one of the temptations is always to push people for a few days. Because, look, you can get a marginal increase in productivity by keeping people awake. Yep. But people lose their long-term perspective. Exactly. And it's not just keeping people awake is going to result in a, that marginal increase that you can continue. You can't continue it. Exactly. 
but we, but but you but you can if you if you're willing to literally destroy people in the process. There was a guy. Not, not even. Not there, even. Well, uh, oh, artillerymen are some of the best subjects for studying sleep deprivation because one, they're in the military, so it's kind of hard to say no. Yep. Two. Uh, the tasks they have to do are pretty objectively measured. Hmm. You have the artillery, you have shooting around out of a, out of a gun, and that's pretty scientifically measurable. You can measure the rates of errors. It's not kind of a guesswork of, uh, okay, this guy reacted in a way that I guess is right. No, you can measure it. Sure. Was it on the right trajectory? Did it have the right mills? Did it have the right, uh, uh, charge was it the right shell? All that is measurable. Mm-hmm. So when things go wrong, you can easily mark that as something that went wrong. So what happens when you take uh, an artillery unit and have one part of it get eight hours of sleep, another part get uh, six hours of sleep, uh, another part of it get four hours of sleep? Right. And do it for four weeks. Right. I'm pretty sure the accuracy graph goes down with the group that's not getting enough sleep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's where they, we get the 25% measurement. Yeah. Uh, well, the one chart I saw was at the four hours of sleep over uh, 24 uh, days group got about 15% accuracy. Okay. Good. That is scary when yep. you're dealing with high explosives. Oh my God! Are you kidding me? Of course it is, because that's a that's a what is that? Eighty five percent chance of error. I mean, my God, when you're dealing with TNT and high explosives, that's the last thing you want. The, oh, the, the paper child stuff. TNT's <laughs> child stuff. The the paper we're talking about, by the way, I'll link to in the show notes uh, on this one, so you guys can check it out for yourselves if you want to. Um, uh, and I've seen people who are sleep deprived a- after just seven days using lighters right next to the ammo truck. Yep. Yep, I get it. I'm going to say, when you're an artilleryman, fire bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'll tell you another another anecdote from my Sea Org experience was a guy who uh, was over in the Dissemination Bureau, and he was up for, I think, four straight days. I mean, he looked like death warmed over. I was seriously concerned about him physically um, watching him on day three. And he was just in the zone. I mean, he just was like, oh, I got to get this done. And he was, he was in his office 24 seven. I mean, he, he might leave to go get some food and come back. And it was just this, he was the only guy who could do it and it had to get done. And there was this strict time and he just about killed himself. Literally. I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I, I, I hate using these hyperbolic words. I believe words. you, uh, you, you, uh, they've measured soldiers after, uh, Field training exercises. Uh, there are there are endocrine. There are hormonal changes. Yep. Uh, there is that is the blood borne chemical transmitters change in the body. Lower levels of testosterone and other things. There's a lot of stuff that changes with you after prolonged lack of sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what changed with this guy was he he actually didn't recover. Um, he he did the project. You know, got it done, 
went and collapsed. I think he was gone for like two or three days when he went and, and, and finally was allowed to go get some sleep. And he left the Sea Org shortly thereafter. Uh, he never really did come back from that is my point. And, um, and, that, and I, I felt powerless to be able to do anything. I, was, I, I think I was even talking to him like, dude, you've got to go get some sleep. And he was like, nope, I can't do it. I can't. I got to get this done. And I just don't have the time. And it's not going to get done if I go sleep. And I couldn't talk him out of it, you know. And let's, let's take a look at this from the organization's perspective. They had the short-term project that was probably completed, not very alertly, yep. but it got completed, and they lost a guy who was the only guy they had for certain projects. That's right. That's right. Because he was, At what he point was... does a short-term goal completely blow out uh, the long-term goal? And Scientology... A hundred percent of the time is the answer to that question, because it is all about short term goals in Scientology and the Sea Org. And that's part of the craziness of it. And we'll 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 um, well, maybe that might actually be a great segue into the next aspect of this, which is the short term stress and long term stress. You know, this 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 destroyed this guy. I mean, I literally watched it happen. I, I, I felt awful about it. There wasn't anything I could do about it. And our commanding officer, who was encouraging and validating him the whole time he was doing all the work, you know, kind of pulled a Hubbard afterwards and was like, oh, yeah, I really shouldn't have done that. But it was, it, you know, well, you were condoning it while it was happening and, and encouraging it, in fact, and then tries to, you know, skate off as though, you know, she didn't have anything to do with the consequences of it, which is that we lost the guy. You know. And that is where having seniors be accountable for the sleep deprivation of their juniors is important. Exactly. And one of the good th results of that in the U.S. military was that when soldiers were trying to de-stress by playing video games all night uh, in Iraq, sometimes commanders had to go and cut uh, the power cables for their game systems. Yep. Sure, they had to buy the guys a whole new game system, but... Those guys are going to be rested before they have to go outside the wire uh, on patrol. Exactly. Exactly. You got, and it's that balance, and and finding that in the moment or in the middle of the emergency is always a challenge. I'll just you know just put it that way. Um, if it's in the middle in the middle of an emergency, yeah. and that's where I think the short term perspective of Scientology really messes with that. Yep. Because then everything becomes an emergency and you don't actually do the right prioritization that helps things actually get done. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you how this happens in the Sea Org specifically. And this is very much the case with these authoritarian type command structure cults. And this is and that's most of them. So this is broadly applicable across the boards. And that is that there's the concept in Scientology that L. Ron Hubbard's written policies are the senior orders and directions that you follow, but it's actually not true. It, it exists as a concept. It's a nice idea. Uh, if it isn't written, it isn't true, that kind of thing. But it's really all bullshit because when the rubber meets the road, and, and this was made abundantly clear to me on 
as a staff member, it was already kind of clear, but as a Sea Org member, there was no mistake. When David Miscavige issues an order or anyone in RTC, the Religious Technology Center, Miscavige's organization, issues an order, or anyone who's in the Commodore's Messenger Org, the CMO, issues an order, any of these people, it is senior to and takes precedence over any L. Ron Hubbard policy. In is that explicitly stated? I, I am saying that that is true. Okay, that's how it was actually that's done. That's the culture of Scientology. So there's the written rules that we follow policy to the letter. You can only be commived for violating policy. You know, you can only get in trouble for not doing your job. But and then, then there's how it's actually done. Exactly. And how it's actually done is when those people issue an order, you drop everything and you get that order done no matter what. And at least that's, that's what they expect of you. Now, few and far between, a Sea Org member, a lower you know, uh, ranking Sea Org member, let's say, will have it in them to take Hubbard seriously and say, no, I'm not going to do that because L. Ron Hubbard says, this is my job, this is what the policy says, this is what I need to do. Few and far between, you get people who will stand up for themselves and will push back. I would say 95% of the time that people do that, and I'm just, you know, sort of guesstimating here, obviously, I haven't done a study, but my anecdotal experience uh, in 17 years of the Sea Org was that about 90, 95% of the time that somebody stood up to a messenger, to, an, to, a, to a CMO person, to an RTC person, nobody ever stood up to David Miscavige. So just take that out of the picture entirely because that just doesn't happen. I didn't expect that would have ever yeah, happened. That's, that's not in the picture, okay? But anytime somebody did, they would get punished until, you know, pilloried in a public fashion. Usually it was, it was uh, scrubbing dishes or uh, cleaning latrine type of activity or some kind of degrading physical punishment. Um, until they realized who was actually in charge. And once they had that realization that, oh, I'm not in charge, my, uh, my use of L. Ron Hubbard doesn't matter, these people are the ones who are in charge and what they say goes. And when they say jump, I have to ask how high. You learn that fairly quickly, you know, so it tends to discourage any kind of, you know, uh, standing up for your rights even though it's right in the policy that you need to do that, people don't do it. Right? And I'm going to point out that the effects of sleep deprivation are so severe that a person may not be at their full ability to consider or argue their point as things go on. That's right. Because one, you're not as able to react to a changing situation you don't have as much energy to continue your normal tasks. So you're probably going to be getting into more trouble. Yep. And you're more likely to hallucinate. And let's remember, hallucinations aren't just, uh, oh, you have some strange uh, psychiatric condition. No. Quite often it's a result of the brain trying to piece together information at a time when it realizes it has to make a guess, 
And if you're sleep deprived, it's going to make more guesses. That's right. That's right. And and hallucinations are also not always visual, by the way, guys. <laughs> Sometimes right. they're uh, they they manifest Auditory. in other ways. Auditory ones are especially undercounted. That's right. That's exactly right. And over time, now now matching this up or or merging this over into the stress factor, um, this is really this this just compounds the problem because. The sleep deprivation is one factor. Now you enter in some psychological factors as well. And this is where stress comes into play. And we can talk maybe about short-term stress to start with. And there's a, there's a, a, a definition from one of these um, papers that I thought really seemed to hit the nail on the head for me when I was reading it. And I wanted to share it with everybody. Um, the definition... A current definition stipulates that, quote, stress is a process by which certain work demands evoke an appraisal process in which perceived demands exceed resources. Ex perceived demands exceed resources and result in undesirable physiological, emotional, cognitive, and social changes. Okay, so the key part there is demand exceeding resources. You're stressing because there's some demand, whether it's internal or external, that you don't, you can't meet it. It's you don't have the money, time, resources, energy, whatever, to deal with it. And so the reaction or response that we have to that, that crazy feeling sound that comes on in your head, and that this is how it manifests for me, at least. You know, the kind of the world is sort of shaking and you can't control it and you want to and you can't control yourself and you want to because these demands that are on your head are so intense and so important and yet you can't meet those demands. That's the day-to-day -day life of a Sea Org member, <laughs> you know. And over time, that evokes, you know, terrible consequences for you physically because you're overstraining your physiology, your your brain. And the resources. system is designed to evoke that. That's right. And that stats are calculated weekly. Bingo. And you have to be showing improved stats every week. That's right. That's right. And that's that kind of times crunch. You know, when they say make a million dollars and you're a large international organization or you have resources that span, a, you know, the, the Western United States, you go, OK, we can pull that off. And then it's no, no, it's not make a million dollars. It's make a million dollars in a week. And suddenly everything's gone to hell. And because if you pull it off by sacrificing all sorts of stuff like keeping your people awake for four days yep. of uh, uh, persuading smaller parishioners of alienating some of the bigger donors and you do it and they say, great, do that or better next week. Exactly. And you can't. You're going to burn stuff out that way. That's right. And, and I realized that, by the way, while I was there. This was one of the nails in the coffin along the path of me getting the hell out of there was realizing after about, I mean, I'm a slow learner though. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to tell you straight up, I was not smart about any of this. And it took me about seven years, okay, before I started really burning out. 
as a, as a manager, as a Sea Org manager. And it was eight years before I finally walked out the back door one night and didn't come back for three days and, you know, let everybody know I'm, I'm, I'm fucking done with this. But up until that point, right, it was this cyclic, you know, this, this, this demand, demand, demand. And to the point where after, uh, yeah, after about seven, seven and a half years of that, I was in a state of paranoid delusion. I don't think I'm overstating the case. I was afraid of my shadow. I was on pins and needles in a way that I can't even describe anymore. It's it's hard to remember how how intense it was. But I I've never felt closer to actual insanity than that that end period of time where I was in a in this incredibly stressful situation for months at a time. And uh, and that's that's the effect of 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 too much of it, you know. Total control by arbitrary decision makers tends to create uh, an an insanity producing effect. Yeah, exactly. And 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 if I hadn't lived it, I might agree and understand academically. Yes, that that sounds all good, and that's very very correct. Having lived it, I'm telling you, it's all, it is, this is the, this is the truth. This is how it is. And I was never, I was at a point after enough of this where the idea of leaving, the idea of, uh, like, those ideas just kind of stop happening to you. Like, you just, you just don't, you, you don't have the brain power to even think about escaping anymore. It's just the grind. You're just stuck in the grind, and you can't. They're so focused on short-term survival that long-term survival doesn't get considered. That's right. That's right. And you can drive yourself on that. I did for years, with the purpose that that you're abusing. You know, you're going through all this bullshit. You are going through incredible amounts of nonsense, and putting up with getting yelled and screamed at every other hour, just about. You know, under all of these conditions. Um, because you really keep selling yourself that what you're doing matters, you're saving the world, this is the work that has to get done, and by hook or by crook, we're going to get it done. So I'm, try I, I'm only saying this because I'm trying to differentiate this from, say, a combat situation or a war situation or, or any kind of even... The short-term you know, emergency response. Yeah, even first responders. You know, okay, it's going to be a finite period of time and then it's going to be over. You know, there's going to be this stressful emergency and then that's going to be done. And if it's and 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 if that's the situation and it's a one-off, you know, we all go okay. We, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing. Here we go, right? But like a nine-eleven or something, you know. The, I, I, I'm not going to say that you know the, the the first responders there who worked for days on end shouldn't have done that. But this was a whole. The Sea Org's not that at all. It's not. It, it's there's no legitimacy to this. There's no real thing you're doing that that is actually helping people in doing this. It's it one was, of the, you know, one of the temptations a lot of people have is to assume that effort equals results. Yes. And sometimes effort does not equal results. You can expend massive amounts of effort spinning our wheels and accomplishing nothing. That's right. 
That's right. And, and that's sometime. yeah. And that's 17 years of my life. <laughs> Actually, if I'm really being honest, it's 25 years of my life because that it's the same shit at the staff level. It's just not quite as gruesome. You know, I was I pulled all-nighters as a staff member many times. But that was if I'm really being honest, that was more on me. I very rarely did I have orders that I must. It did happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it wasn't You did bad. it because it, you were dedicated, not because you were constantly being forced to. It, yeah. Basically, as a staff member in Santa Barbara, there was more leeway. There was more initiative on my part. And I was more gung-ho about the whole thing because I was this young, you know, very energized, very energetic person. And I wanted Scientology to succeed. So I really was giving it my all. And that's, of course, what led me to the Sea Org. But, but the Sea Org was a whole nother level. And, and, and I think I've adequately described it now. I don't need to restate it all. But it was, uh, it was bad. A few observations. One, young people tend to be healthier uh, than older people. Mm -hmm. And they are likely more able to put up with short-term stresses. They won't have as immediately a debilitating effect. There are also some people who can better withstand the effects of sleep deprivation than others. Yes. Yeah. On a short term, I would say. Uh, or, or a prolonged time. So, for example, when I was in basic training, mm. some of the people would go, get kind of stupid after just a week. Mm -hmm. Other people would kind of get kind of too focused and kind of blurry uh, after about four weeks. Mm. And now it's, yes, you have time in which you can get a proper amount of sleep, but it's still enough that you're going to have an ongoing sleep deficit. Mm -hmm. And that's partially by design because sleep deprived people have a harder time escaping. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. like a minimum security prison. Yeah, exactly. You can I get out <laughs> by going through the bureaucratic process, but... Yeah. People don't always try that. Yeah, exactly. I think that it contributes to, this is maybe the last point I want to make on this, and then maybe we'll move toward wrapping up for this week. But I, I think this might be an important point, actually, and it wasn't something that I thought of when we first were putting this together. Um, I believe now in thinking about this and thinking about the executives and the, and the people who were involved in ordering this kind of activity, that... I, I think it also contributes to a vengeful, vindictive sort of attitude about it. You know, this, I had to go through it, so you're going to go through it. Uh, Even when it's not necessary. Aspect. Yes. Over long periods of time, though. So it's not just a hazing ritual. It becomes a, a chronic hazing ritual, you could say, right? Where this level of the caste system gets to rain terror down on the lower level, and the lower level isn't aware of the fact that that level is also having terror rain down on them by the next higher level until you get up to Miscavige, where he's the one who's actually causing all of it. We didn't see that. All we could see was the immediate person in front of us ordering these things, and so we were unaware of the systemic problem until we were there for a good long time and started really seeing how it all works. But but this, I think, is also a contributing factor to how the abuse is even generated, is, is it creates a vindictive mindset 
which is easy to maintain when you don't have enough time or energy to step back and see what's really going on. I, I think there's another aspect that if people are unaware of the problems caused by sleep deprivation, they may think that having people uh, continue to stay up to try to fix those problems is actually helping. Exactly. And if they yeah. don't understand that, they might be okay with uh, accidentally creating a cycle of ongoing problems as a result. I would say that uh, that's I would once say there was some, some program to help beautify uh, workers in orgs because of some complaints by uh, people buying services mm -hmm. uh, that the workers were kind of stinky and all that. So apparently uh, Scientology paid for beauticians and I talked about uh, that. What? I think you learned that from me. Pro, uh, I talked about that. They brought in these people and they, I they, think I could they, be. I think I heard that from Mark Headley though. But. Oh, okay. We had the same thing at the pack base. We had, we had people come in and teach us how to dry ourselves with a towel. <laughs> you know, you pack okay. yourself, right? You don't scrub yourself with a towel. I've never forgotten that. How, they, women had had makeup seminars and stuff like that, you know? And part of that was because uh, the staff in some facilities, and I want to say Copenhagen was specifically mentioned, ah. didn't have time to clean themselves. Yes, very true. Same applied on, on pack base. They, there were stinky ass people there, man. The people who are paying for services were complaining that staff were stinky and dirty. And part of that was because staff was being kept up so they couldn't clean themselves. Exactly. There was, what kind of time management does that create? It's a, it's a problem created entirely by the drive push people too far exactly it's by design you know i, I if i haven't it, 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 for the audience if i haven't been clear yet all of this is by design this this is this is purposeful they, they mean to do this to their followers to their members it's the kind of thing that makes david miscavige and l ron hubbard happy Doing this to people is what makes them happy and gives them satisfaction. That's the opposite world of the destructive cult mentality. And we all thought we were making all these sacrifices because we believe the lies they told us about why we were doing it. And it was never even a thought when we were in the middle of it that Hubbard or Miscavige were the source of the problem or that they were enjoying this in any way. Those were completely alien concepts to me as a Sea Org member and as a Scientologist. It was only after I got out and got away, got some sleep, got some time away from it and learned a few things that I'm able to see that as clearly as I can now. And so that's, that's what we're talking about here. So anyway, just wanted to make sure that was... <laughs> <laughs> super clear you know because it's that bad it really is it's that bad that's what these groups are about so so cyprian thank you for talking to me about this this week i wish there i wish i could have talked for another few hours on it <laughs> well we will no worries 
I just I gotta keep these at short chunks or I, my head starts exploding. So, uh, but thank you very much for your contribution to this and for for uh, for making this happen. I appreciate it. <laughs> and that being said, uh, Cyprian's the strong, silent Russian type. So, <laughs> for for you podcast listeners out there, he raised his hand. No, no, I am not stereotypical. <laughs> I'm not a combative person. Where's my shoe? Exactly. Uh, folks out there, thanks also for inviting us into your home and listening to us go on at a mad rate for the last hour. I hope that you got something out of this. Uh, it was an effort at information, education, and entertainment, and hopefully we are succeeding with this. If you're enjoying the channel and my show, then of course, consider joining me on Patreon or uh, sending me a one-off donation through PayPal Works. Also, there are links to both of those in the show uh, description here on YouTube. Otherwise, uh, thank you for your support, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.